I've got kind of a, I don't know if it's a quiz. I can't think of if, if there's a game that's called this or not, but it's like, I don't know if it's family feud-like, but my question is, what do these four things have in common? Uh, one of our oven mitts, swings, the bathroom door at Starbucks, and an appliance store in Woodstock that shall remain unnamed. So an oven mitt, swings, the bathroom door at Starbucks, an appliance store in Woodstock. This. Katie couldn't figure this out, so you probably won't either. I don't know how you would figure it out, actually. Is the name but of the store part of it? No. Okay. No, okay. just the service they offer. Just service. And here's what they all have in common. There are things I've lost confidence in. <laughs> so there's no way you could have figured that out. <laughs> so, so first, one of our oven mitts uh, has a little hole in it right here by the thumb joint. And the other one doesn't, but every time I'm using the oven mitt, there's times when if I don't pay attention, I'll put it in and the pan will go right up in there and all of a sudden I'll be burning my hand as I take something out of the oven. So every time I'm always like checking which oven mitt it is. And even when I check to make sure it's the oven mitt without a hole, I'm still nervous that I'm going to get burnt there. Second, swings. It's the second thing. First oven mitt, swings. In the fall, Hudson likes to be pushed on the swing, so I was putting him in, pushing him in his swing. And I think it was before bringing him to school one day. And then usually he'd like to end with me sitting on one of the big swings and him sitting on my lap. And so we did that. And this swing always had kind of like a little squeaking sound. And I was always like, I don't know what that's about. Um, but all of a sudden, we're swinging. And as we're going up, it breaks. And we just go launching off and land on the ground. And Hudson was on top of me, so he didn't really get hurt or anything. But he was kind of freaked out. And it turns out that squeaking sound was... It was not hooked up properly, so it was slowly wearing through the metal and like putting this, um, uh, you know, weight and pressure on it that it couldn't hold. And so any swing I go on now, I'm nervous. Doesn't matter if it's that swing or at the park. I'm just like, is this gonna break? I'm like looking up at it, all scared. Third, the bathroom door at Starbucks. One of the bathroom doors, there's two of them. One of them doesn't quite latch properly. And so there's been times when I've had the traumatic experience, I'm sure for the other person too, is when I've opened the door, it's unlocked, and somebody's either standing there or sitting there, and it's like, oh, close that quick. And so that, you know, that's traumatic for both of us. But every time I go to use the bathroom there, um, I try to go in the other one because I know that one actually locks. The, uh, this one, you have to pull it really hard to hear a click, and then it will lock. But if it doesn't hear that click, people close it, and they hit the lock button, they think it's locked, and then it's but it's not actually locked. And so I'm always really nervous and avoid that one. Fourth, an appliance store in Woodstock that shall remain unnamed. Uh, we've called this appliance store to help us with several of our appliances, and we've never been really impressed with their service. We had Our dishwasher wasn't working for a long time, um, and so we had them come look at the dishwasher, and they come look at it, and they're like, we can't figure out what's wrong. Um, and so we're like, well, there's something wrong with it. And so then Katie gets on the Internet, and she finds out these seem to be the issues that we're having. This is probably the problem. She ordered the part, and then I install it. It's kind of our team effort. She researches. I, I do the, the grunt work. Um, so we paid this you know, appliance store 80 bucks to come out for this service call. And they're like, I don't know. And then Katie was able to find, figure it out, um, and they weren't. And so we're kind of like, well, why would we call them for service calls if they don't seem to be able to fix things better than we can fix things? And so... Four things I've lost confidence in. An unvermint, swings, bathroom door at Starbucks, an appliance store in Woodstock. And there's a story I want to, I would love us to do kind of like a little brainstorm of like what causes us to lose confidence in things. 
But there's a story at the end of this sermon that I really want to get to, and so I'm not going to have us do like a group brainstorm of like what causes us to lose confidence in things. But just some things out of those four that I listed are maybe the thing doesn't work, or someone or something has let you down, or you don't think it's quite up to the task, or you expected it to do something, but it didn't, didn't do what it said it would do. Um, or maybe someone else, uh, maybe I was imagining like if I, you know, if I was like, there's lots of times when I'll put, maybe not lots, but I'll put an outfit on and I'll show Katie, I'm like, check this out. And she's like, uh, and you know, so if I were to walk out of the house without asking her, I might have been like, do, 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 you know, I got the sweet outfit on and then somebody else is like, no, lose confidence in it. Or if you were, you know, came and, I don't know, showed someone a shirt or this cool thing you have, look at my cool phone and like, eh. someone's like, not very interested. It's kind of like, well, now I lost confidence in that. And so those are maybe things that make us lose confidence, but what, when we do lose confidence in something, we tend to avoid it, or maybe worried, anxious, and stressed every time we use it. Like, I avoid that bathroom door at Starbucks. I'm kind of worried every time I use that oven mitt or every time I'm on a swing. Um, you might warn other people about it. Like, I've warned other, I've told the, the manager at Starbucks about when the door hasn't been working and stuff, and, you know, it's just like warn people, are like, don't go in that one, use the one on the left. Actually, I, I told a police officer the other day that he was coming in there to use the bathroom, and I, I wasn't like random police officer, I knew him, but I was like, yeah, use the one on the left, because the one on the right, you know, things, weird stuff can happen. Um, so, and I, you know, you wouldn't recommend it to people. I would not recommend this appliance store um, that we've used because they weren't very good at fixing our stuff. And so this is our, our final message in this series, laying out our growth theme for the year, um, inviting to surrender, or as it's stated in our mission statement, it's inviting others to surrender all of life to Jesus. And the Apostle Paul says something interesting near the beginning of his letter to the church in Rome, and Heather read this section for us. First, Paul says that he's eager to preach the gospel to him. And then we might wonder, well, why is he eager to preach the gospel to these people in the city of Rome? In chapter 1, verse 16, says, uh, gives us the reason. It says, for or because I am not ashamed of the gospel. And uh, it was about two years ago. Actually, I think it was the last weekend we met um, here when the pandemic was starting. Or it was the second to last weekend. I preached a sermon on this verse, um, and I referenced one of the verses later in Romans chapter 10. This week, or today I'm preaching... Romans chapter 10 and referencing this verse. So kind of similar themes if this sounds familiar, but different content. And so he said, why is he eager to pre preach the gospel? It says, because he's not ashamed of the gospel. And that's kind of an interesting reason, I think. It would suggest that if Paul or anyone is not eager to preach the gospel, it might mean it's because we're ashamed of the gospel. And if we're to list reasons that we don't talk to people about Jesus, we don't talk to people about the gospel or about our faith, we might say, well... I'm scared they're not going to like me. I'm scared about how they're going to receive it. I'm scared they're not going to, the relationship's not going to continue. I'm scared I'm going to do it wrong. Um, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to have the right, I'm not going to say it right. I'm not going to have the answers to their questions. And, but I don't think we usually say, why am I not talking about people, to people about Jesus? Well, it's because I'm ashamed of the gospel. Um, but Paul is identifying that as kind of an underlying reason that he would have if he wasn't eager to talk to people about Jesus. And, but why would he be ashamed of the gospel? What reason would he have for being ashamed of it? Well, being ashamed is having you know feelings of embarrassment or fear of ridicule, and so and the opposite of ashamed would be confidence. So if we're ashamed, we kind of like I don't want to be embarrassed, or I don't want I'm fearing ridicule. Um, to not be ashamed would be to have confidence. 
And so what reason would Paul have for being embarrassed or ashamed of the gospel? Why would he lack confidence? What's going on in the world or in Paul's life that would make him lack confidence like that? And he addresses one of those reasons uh, in chapters 9 through 11 of this letter. And the situation was that Jesus' disciples were proclaiming that Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah. That's how our statement of faith says that we believe that Jesus is Christ, is Israel's promised Messiah. And that he's the one they've been waiting for. He's fulfilled all their longings and hopes and expectations that were laid out in the Old Testament. And while many Israelites did respond to this good news by surrendering to Jesus, in general, for the most part, the nation of Israel did not receive Jesus as their promised Messiah. Many had rejected the gospel. And so you could see how somebody like Paul or people who have believed in Jesus would be saying, well, what does that mean that he's come as Israel's promised Messiah, but for the most part Israel has rejected him? What does that mean? What, what, what are we supposed to take from that? If it's supposed to be good news for these people, why have they responded so negatively to it? And just imagine you're one of the few people uh, in the nation of Israel who has responded to Jesus to believing the gospel when you heard it, you were filled with excitement and joy. It sounded just too good to be true. Everything we've been waiting for, hundreds of years, thousands of years, Jesus has come and he's the fulfillment of all of that. And you begin telling others, the Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. And he's been resurrected from the dead. And now he's seated at God's right hand and we're waiting for him to come again. He's going to make all things new. And you're, you're telling people about it. And some people, they just don't respond with any excitement or joy or belief like you responded. Some are skeptical. Some don't care. Some think you're crazy. Some don't just reject it, but they turn hostile and oppose you, trying to get you to shut up, threatening you that if you keep talking like this, we're going to do you know X, Y, and Z to you. Some people make fun of you. Family members say you aren't welcome in their home anymore. Friends stop talking to you. And this feels like, you know, this just feels so foreign that this doesn't happen to us. And I'm I know of people in the United States that this has happened too, where it's like, we're not going to talk to you anymore because you're believing this thing. And if you look at, like, specifically Muslim countries where people come to Jesus, that's one of the big barriers. They're afraid, if I come to Jesus, all of my family is going to reject me. I will have nothing. And it's when a culture where family is so important, that's very difficult. And so you begin rethinking things. People aren't responding like I did. Why aren't they believing this? Did I get something wrong there? Is Jesus not who I thought he was? Maybe he really is a fraud, like they've been saying he is. Have I been deceived? You're excited about Jesus, but many other people in your life don't seem to be. And in fact, instead of responding with excitement, they're responding with apathy or anger or somewhere in between. And so you lose confidence in the gospel. You're a little quieter about it, a little less public about it. You're less vocal about your faith. You try not to make it obvious that you're involved in this Christian church group going on, uh, and maybe you try to hide your Christian activities, and you just kind of keep your commitment to Jesus to yourself, and maybe you lose a little confidence in God too. What's going on, God? I thought this was part of your plan. I thought you were behind this. I thought there's some, you were working in this, and now what's happening? People aren't believing it like I believed it. They're not responding like I responded to it. Why aren't you saving other people like you saved me? Why don't they hear it as the good news that I heard it as? And so perhaps you find yourself there today, lacking confidence in the gospel. And if you're being honest, maybe you would say that your actions actually show you're ashamed of the gospel. You're a little embarrassed about Jesus, a little embarrassed about your beliefs. You decided, 
I'm just going to kind of keep it to myself. You lack confidence that Jesus really is good news for everyone. And I definitely can lack that confidence. I can often feel like if I bring up Jesus, it's going to be awkward. Or if I tell people this thing about, um, you know, Jesus came to save you, and if you reject him, you're going to hell. Even like saying that statement to somebody. I remember one of my cousins asked me, this wasn't, I wasn't afraid in that moment, I mean a little bit, but she said, she was asking me questions about um, my faith. She's like, so do you believe that anybody who doesn't believe in Jesus is going to hell? And it was very hard to say yes, because in that moment she was telling me, I don't believe in this. And so that was hard. And then she's asking questions, well, what about the person you know, over in this other country who's never heard of the name of Jesus? Do they go to hell too? Yes. And that is very hard to say yes to somebody asking you point blank, do you think this person is going to hell? Or do you think I'm going to hell if I don't believe in Jesus? And to say yes can be like, that just sounds so offensive. It sounds so exclusive. It sounds like I don't, I'm arrogant because I think I know the one way to do things and all these other religions are wrong. And so it can be easy for us to feel like my beliefs are kind of offensive. To kind of be ashamed to say, Jesus died for your sins and you can be forgiven. And unless you are forgiven, uh, you will, as our statement of faith says, you will suffer in eternal consciousness. Punishment. That can be very hard to say to people, especially today, and to uh, and we can be a little embarrassed or ashamed of it. But thankfully, we have the Apostle Paul to help us. So let's look at how he deals with this problem for himself and for this church. So the first section of this, um, what we're going to go through, is chapter nine, verse thirty to ten, thirteen. So nine thirty to ten thirteen, and in this, I'm calling this the title of this little part. Pursuing righteousness the wrong way. Pursuing righteousness the wrong way from 9.30 to 10.13. Pursuing righteousness the wrong way. In chapters 9 through 11, Paul's answering the the question, why are so many Israelites rejecting the gospel? Why are so many Israelites rejecting the gospel? And the answer in chapter 9, for most of it, is because God didn't choose them for salvation. That's the answer for most of chapter 9, because God didn't choose them for salvation. And in that chapter, chapter 9, he expresses his sorrow, his anguish over his fellow Israelites rejecting the gospel. And then he explains that their rejection, you might be able to say, well, if they're rejecting it, there must be something wrong with the message. And he says, no, there's nothing wrong with the message. The gospel hasn't failed. God hasn't failed either. And in this chapter, chapter 9, he emphasizes God's sovereignty and control and power over all things. Sovereignty means God's control, his ability to manage things, his power and control over everything. So chapter 9, the emphasis is God's sovereignty or control over everything. And Paul proves in the Old Testament, God is doing what he has always done throughout all history. He's choosing some for salvation. So from God's perspective, people rejecting the gospel is not a failure. It's not a failure of the message. It's not a failure on God's part or of his plan. It's all all according to plan that some will believe and others won't. So the first answer he gives is, why are people rejecting the gospel? His first answer in chapter 9 is, because God didn't choose them for salvation. And the answer in chapter 10 is, focused more on the human part of it, why are they rejecting the gospel? It's because they're ignorant, stubborn, and disobedient. Why are people rejecting the gospel? First, is because God didn't choose them for salvation. Second, because they're ignorant, stubborn, and disobedient. And so the focus shifts from God's sovereignty to human responsibility. Neither God nor the gospel have failed. Israel has failed to respond to God's grace. 
And so Paul starts this explanation in chapter 9, verse uh, 30, through chapter 10, verse 13, telling us how Israel was pursuing righteousness the wrong way. That's what those verses are saying. So the word righteousness is a legal word. It puts us into a court scene. In a court scene in the ancient world, you can either be justified, which means you are declared righteous or innocent. You're leaving. You're not getting a sentence. You're, you didn't commit that crime. You're justified. You are declared righteous or innocent. Or you could be condemned, declared guilty. And so the question here is, how can you be declared righteous in God's court? And Paul contrasts two ways of pursuing righteousness, and he contrasts it three times in 9, 30 to 32, in 10, 1 through 3, and 10, 5 through 6. And one way to pursue a righteousness, to pursue righteousness is to pursue a righteousness on your own based on works of the law. So you can pursue a righteousness on your own based on the works based on works of the law. And Paul says this is what many in Israel are doing. They're trying to be right with God, they're trying to get a right standing with God based on their ability to keep God's commands, God's laws, God's rules. And so they're, they're, that's the effort they're going for. But he says another way to pursue righteousness is to receive righteousness from God based on faith in Jesus. This is a righteousness given by God, received as a free gift. And so the one way to pursue it, you can pursue righteousness, is a, a righteousness of your own based on works of the law or a righteousness uh, received righteousness from God based on faith in Jesus. So you can pursue a righteousness that God gives you, or you can be, pursue a righteousness that you're trying to get on your own. And the problem with the first one, is with the righteousness on your own, is that in order to have that, you need to keep all of God's laws all of the time. That's how you can have a righteousness on your own, based on your ability to keep the law. And in contrast, Paul explains what it looks like to place your faith in Jesus in chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. You will be justified, he says. And believing in your heart, confessing with your mouth, it's not like we're supposed to get, okay, I believe in my heart, confess with my mouth that I get those right. It's just like two sides of the same coin. One is the inner response. One is the outer uh, showing of it. The inner response is I'm confessing Jesus my Lord, believing he uh, is raised from the dead, and outwardly I'm confessing Jesus is my Lord and he's saved, he's raised from the dead. And what is believed and confessed is that Jesus is the resurrected Lord. And the result is justification and salvation. And in verse 12 he says, look, there's no difference between anybody. This is the way everybody gets saved. difference between Jew and Greek, or Greek meaning non-Jewish people. And so why is there no distinction? End of verse 12 says, For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So when you call on Jesus as your Lord, he bestows his riches on you. You call on him for forgiveness, for salvation, for the gift of right standing with God. And when we surrender to Jesus as our king, we receive the benefits of his kingdom. That's how we, how can the Lord's riches be given to us? How, we can, how can we benefit those? I surrender to you as my king, and now I get the benefits of your kingdom, justification, salvation. And so calling on him is the same as trusting in him, relying on him, surrendering to him. We let go of other ways of being right with God, and we receive the free gift of righteousness that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So these are two fundamentally different ways of pursuing a right standing with God. And Paul's point is that only one of them actually ends with attaining righteousness. If you're trying to do it based on the law, you're always going to fall short. 
But the only way you can actually be righteous is to, by grace, through faith, in Christ. And that's the only way. Either you can trust in Jesus or you can trust in yourself. You can rely on Jesus to have a right standing with God, or you can rely on yourself to have a right standing with God and earn it. And Paul says that many in Israel have rejected Jesus because they are pursuing a righteousness of their own based on their ability to keep the law. And the right way to pursue righteousness is to receive it as a gift from God by faith in Christ as our Lord who saves. But the issue is that this idea, even though we would say this is the precious heart, uh, the precious truth at the heart of Christianity, this is how we can feel free before God. This is the good news, right? It's like, yes, this is the gospel, that you can be right with God by faith in Jesus. But that message that Christ died for your sins can actually be very offensive. Paul says it's offensive, it's a stumbling block for Jews, it's foolishness to Gentiles. It sounds ridiculous. And just put yourself in the sandals of a first century Jew and imagine their response to this message. Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, died for your sins. Believe in him so you can be forgiven. And their response might be, really? This is how God is returning to his people as this carpenter who then hung naked on a cross, ashamed, and died? This is how God is showing up in a victorious way um, to give us freedom from all that oppress us, to bring us out of darkness into light. Really, a God, this guy? And you're saying that's God's great victory for us? Nothing about him looks victorious. In fact, it looks like he got defeated. He's dead. The Romans killed him. He was supposed to take the Romans out. So what good is a dead Messiah? And secondly, you're not only saying that the Messiah was crucified, which is outlandish. The, they never thought the Messiah would be crucified. He's supposed to defeat the people who are crucifying people, the Romans. So you're not only saying that uh, he was crucified, but you're saying the reason he was crucified was to pay for my sins. And thirdly, you're saying that right, my right standing with God, my righteousness, has nothing to do with how many commands or laws I can keep. You're saying I can be right with God no matter how bad of a person I am just by trusting in this guy. That is ridiculous. Like You have to obey the laws. You can't be right with God without obeying the laws. And so you can see putting yourself in their shoes, like, we've got this law, the Messiah's going to come, and he's going to come and lead us out from under everything that oppresses us. And then Jesus comes, and he dies by the people oppressing them, and then people are saying, just trust in him, and you can be righteous. And I said, wait, what, is, what are you talking about? That's none of what we've been thinking. And this is why Paul quotes the Old Testament in chapter 9, verse 33. He says, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so either Jesus will be your foundation stone, or he'll be a stumbling stone that you trip over. Why do they stumble over him? Paul's explanation is that they have an improper focus on the law of God in the Old Testament. But it's not that Jesus came and was contrary to the law, or opposed the law. Paul says in 10.4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. And Christ is the end of the law because Christ is the end to which the law pointed. It's like a, a road that's leading up to something, and once it gets to its definition, destination, you don't go on the road anymore. You, you stay at the destination. And you know, imagine you're, the law is telling us, um, was pointing to Christ. It's a, it was a road that was meant to get you somewhere. It was a signpost, and its purpose and goal was to lead people to Jesus and point forward to him. 
And so, you know, imagine, you know, continue, their continued focus on the law is like admiring a sign for Disney World and just sitting there and worshiping it without ever going to Disney World or having like a coming soon sign and you're just sitting there looking at this coming soon sign when the business is already open, they're saying, why don't you, why don't you come in and eat? Like you're looking at the coming soon sign or having a save the date and you're just so focused on the save the date card that you never actually go to the party. And he's saying, the, Jesus is the end to which the law pointed and now you're just continuing to focus on the save the date, the, the signpost, and you're worshiping that instead of the thing to which the signpost pointed. And so they're missing it, even though the thing, the person to which the law pointed has come. So that's the first section. And then 10, 14 through 21, this is really Paul saying, they have no excuse. There is no excuse for the people of Israel in his day. So in 10, 14 through 21, Paul shows that Israel can give no excuse for not trusting in Jesus. And he hints at this earlier in verses 6 through 8, in those kind of weird quotes you, you know, that you might have thought were weird when he uh, says, um, uh, it's not, we're not going to ascend to heaven to bring the Messiah down, we're not going to descend into the abyss. But this is quoting from Deuteronomy 30, where Moses is telling the people of Israel, look, you have no excuse for not for, to say, we don't know God's will, therefore we don't know what to do. But Moses is saying, God has clearly revealed his will to you. He came down on Mount Sinai, he said, this is how you follow me. You have no excuse for not doing so. It's very clear. And so he's saying in the same way, you don't have to ascend to heaven to bring the Messiah down or descend down into the abyss to bring the Messiah up from the dead. The Messiah has already come down from heaven. He's already been raised up from the dead. God has clearly revealed that Jesus is the Messiah. He's, given it, he's made it clear what you need to do. And then in verses 14 through 15, he kind of outlines a sequence of events that make it possible for someone to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Because in order to call on the name of the Lord, you must believe. In order to believe in him, you must hear about him. In order to hear about him, someone must preach. And in order for someone to preach, they must be sent. And then Paul sums it up in verse 17. He says, faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of Christ. And Paul's point is this, preachers have been sent. Therefore, the preaching about Christ has been heard. And therefore, there's been an opportunity to believe in Christ and call on him to be saved. And the problem is, as he states in verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. They have heard it but not believed. And so he's saying, Israel has no excuse for not calling on the name of the Lord. They've been given the opportunity. Preachers have been sent. They've declared the gospel. They've heard it. And then Paul quotes more, four more Old Testament passages in verses 18 through 21 to make the point that the gospel has gone out into all the world and Gentiles, a.k.a. non-Israelites, are believing it and they're becoming God's people. But Israel remains disobedient even though God is holding out his hands to them, his arms saying, look, Come to me. This is what I've, I've set this up. This is this is what I've been showing you and talking about. And these quotes from the Old Testament that is saying that Israel in general, throughout their history, has often not responded with belief to God's acts of grace. Instead, they respond with resistance and stubbornness. And the Old Testament even showed that that's going to happen. And non-Israelites, the Gentile world, are going to come into God's people. So this isn't new, he's saying. And so here's the point. Yes, Israel in general has not believed the gospel and has rejected Christ. But that does not mean that God has failed or that the gospel has failed. Neither God nor the gospel has failed, but Israel has failed to respond with faith to what God has done. They're without excuse. They've been given plenty of opportunities. That's kind of his point. And then you're thinking, why don't you just say that up front? We could have moved on. But that's kind of the summary of what he's saying 
But we too might look at the world around us and think, why have so many people rejected Jesus? Why are so many people opposed to Jesus? Has God failed? Has the gospel failed? Maybe this really isn't good news. Maybe it is just a fairy tale. Maybe it is just a legend. Maybe it was some people who got carried away and you know talked about Jesus more than he actually is. Maybe he was just a teacher, just a good guy. And perhaps you've prayed for people, told them about Jesus, but they've not responded by surrendering to him. And you wonder, God, why won't you save them? And this could lead us to lose confidence in the gospel and thus to become ashamed of it. And consider that very personally. Do you show signs of being ashamed of the gospel? And this might sound weird, but there's no, there's no shame in confessing that you're ashamed. I did it earlier, saying, yeah, I can tend to be like, yeah, this, this belief would just be a little too radical for them. You know, I, can't, I can't really say that. Um, let's like tone down some of the parts that are um, less offensive. And even though many have rejected the gospel, Paul says he's not ashamed of it. Why? He said in 1.16, because he still knows it's the power of God for salvation. And in chapter 10, verse 17, he knows that faith can only come by hearing the gospel. Paul knows that God uses the gospel to save people, and so he's eager to preach the gospel to people. He knows that this is how God is going to bring people into his kingdom. And Paul has this confidence, but he also has compassion for those who have not believed. In chapter 9, verse 2, he talks about his great sorrow his unseeking, unceasing anguish because his fellow Israelites have rejected Christ. In 10.1 he says, My heart's desire and prayer for them is that they would be saved, that they would come to Jesus. He has compassion for those who are still pursuing a righteousness on their own. And people can look different ways who are pursuing a righteousness on their own. They might be very arrogant because they're feeling like they're doing pretty good pursuing a righteousness of their own. Or they might be kind of despairing because they're like, what's the point? I can't do any of this. So People might not be super confident even if they're pursuing a righteousness of their own. And Paul has compassion for these people. And when I look at Article 10 of our Statement of Faith saying everyone must repent and believe the gospel or they will be to, to spend eternity with God and joy, joyful in his presence um, or if they don't, they will suffer eternal conscious punishment. Paul really believes that. He really believes what that Article 10 of our Statement of Faith says. And the question is, do we? Do we really believe that? Do we have that compassion for people? And Paul's confidence is not an arrogant confidence, a confidence where he thinks he's better than others. It's a, a compassionate confidence that moves him to sorrow and anguish and a desire for their salvation and to be praying for their salvation. And so the big idea of how I'd like, what I'd like you to take away, um, or maybe, maybe there's something else that stuck out to you, but at least the point I want to make is that you are a tool of salvation in God's hands. You are a tool of salvation in God's hands. That's what Paul believes. He believes when he preaches the gospel, he is a tool of salvation in God's hands. You're a tool of salvation in God's hands too. God's plan is to use you to save people by your sharing of the gospel with them. And so I like to think of it like this. God, God uses saved people to save people. God uses rescued people to rescue people. God uses redeemed people to redeem people. He uses saved people to save people, rescued people to rescue people, and redeemed people to redeem people. And after you have been saved, after you've been rescued, after you've been redeemed, you become a tool of God's salvation, rescue, and redemption in the lives 
of others. And the way we live as a tool of God's salvation uh, in, in his hands is by having compassionate confidence. And maybe part of you is like, man, that feels like a lot. Sometimes when I think about um, even like watching a show with doctors and it's like, oh man, I could never do brain surgery. Like that just feels like there's just too much responsibility in my hands. Like that person's life is in my hands. And we would not say that people's lives are in our hands, but it's like, why would I think that a doctor is doing something more uh, intense or more uh, life-changing than what we are doing in talking to people about Jesus? Is that we're bring, God brings people into the kingdom through us. And what a joy and a privilege that God actually wants to use us to bring people into his family and into his kingdom. That we get to be a part of people coming from darkness and death, being called out of that to life and light, and we could see spiritually dead people raised to life right in front of us. And so if you're wondering, well, I don't know if God does miracles today. If you believe in Christ, you are a walking miracle because the only way someone believes in Jesus is by God changing their life. And you can be part of seeing miracles happen right in front of you if you're sharing the gospel with people and you see them respond with uh, faith rather than rejection or that's boring or that's not for me. And so let's step into the reality that uh, God wants to use us as a tool of salvation in his hands. Let's do it with compassionate confidence. And this passage gives us an important reality to keep in mind as we do so, that uh, there's three people involved anytime um, we're talking about someone's salvation. Um, that person's involved, the person telling them about Jesus is involved, and God is involved. And we have to make sure we know which part we're supposed to play. Is that you have your part, they have their part, God has his part, and our part is to share the gospel. Their part is to respond in faith. God's part is to enable them to do so. And you are only responsible for your part, telling them the gospel. You can't make someone believe. And oftentimes we can put a lot of pressure on ourselves saying, well, it has to be the right time. Um, I have to say it all right. I have to be able to answer the questions. And it's like, well, it's not up to you. The worst... the well, you can fail in other ways, I guess. If you're saying, I'm sharing the gospel with you, but you never talk about Jesus, wouldn't be the gospel. But the worst way we can fail at sharing the gospel is by not sharing the gospel. Because God will take our weak and our imperfect um, words and actions, and he will use that to do his part, which is to create faith in them. We don't create the faith. He just uses that moment to create faith in them when people are hearing the gospel. And that's helpful for us to know that it's not up to us it's up to God. What's up to us is to talk to them about Jesus. And we also must consider the fact that we're part of God's plan of uh, 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 bringing that person to Christ. We may not be the ones who actually see them trust in Christ. And God's plan for them might be to come to Jesus five years later through someone else. But you are a step in that direction for them. And there's a, there's a book that these guys were seeing, I think it was out in the, on the West Coast, and they're seeing people come to know Jesus. And so they started like kind of recording the stories of why these people were trusting in Jesus. And they discovered there was kind of like five thresholds each of them crossed along the way. And so you know, consider this, where you might be in terms of somebody's journey of faith. Their threshold one was trusting a Christian. Threshold two was becoming curious about Jesus. Threshold three was opening up to change uh, not just I'm curious, but I'm actually willing to change things about my life. Threshold four was seeking after God. I'm not just kind of like doing this when it, you know, when when it's convenient, but like I'm actually like seeking. And threshold five was 
entering the kingdom, actually repenting and believing, giving their life to Jesus. And so, there's a mentor in my life who uses this image of um, from baseball. I'm not very good with baseball, but I understood his thing was that when there's not one pitcher that pitches throughout a whole game of baseball. There's usually a starting pitcher, a middle relief pitcher, and then like a closing pitcher. And he says he kind of views evangelism like that. You might be the starting pitcher for this person's in this, you know, this person's life. That they're just learning that Christians can be trusted. Threshold one, trusting a Christian. Maybe somebody else is the middle relief pick, pitcher for this person. That they're starting to become curious with that person, opening up the change, and maybe getting close to seeking. But then I don't know. They they move or something happens. The relationship stops for some reason. And then you might be the the closing pitcher, the one who's going to finish out the game. And it's like. How many people came before you to sowing seeds and tilling the soil and now you get, oh, I'm going to be part of bringing them to Christ, but I have to recognize I didn't do it. God has been working in their life all along to these other people. And the story I want to share, just in closing, I've listened to the story twice, cried both times, so we'll see, get through it. It's from a podcast that one of my, a friend of mine hosts, and I heard this story and I was like, that's just really amazing and encouraging. So this guy is telling the story. His name is Jeff Christofferson. He's a church planter. He's written a number of books that are like given to church planters to read, to know how to church plant churches. And he's telling the story about his dad. They grew up in Saskatchewan, Canada. His dad worked at a brewery, and it, he says his dad was probably kind of on the road to becoming an alcoholic if he wasn't already one. And for some reason, they decided to go to this movie, him and his wife, in 1967 at the one movie theater in town playing the one movie that was available. And they didn't know it, but this movie was actually part of a Billy Graham crusade. I think you all might probably know somewhat Billy Graham. He did all these evangelistic crusades, had big stadiums, whatnot, preached the gospel. So they decided to go to this movie. It's Billy Graham's first movie. It was called The Restless Ones. And Jeff Christopherson's parents didn't know anything about the movie when they showed up. And they got there, found out it was free because you know, it was showing us like an evangelistic thing. And there's one scene in the movie, there's two people in this car, the top is pulled down, they're listening to Billy Graham on the radio giving an invitation to receive Christ. And the two people in the car pray to receive Christ. This is what's happening in the movie. And while that was happening, Jeff Christopherson's dad like reached over and kind of squeezed um, his wife's hand. And then the movie ends, the lights come up bright, and then a man in a suit gets up in the front and he too issues an invitation to receive Christ. And he says, anybody who wants to do that or you know, ha- did that right now while I was like, praying or whatever, come up front and I'll, I'll talk to you. And his mom and dad just kind of looked at each other and other people looked around and nobody did anything and then they all left. Uh, but then Jeff Christopherson's mom and dad get in the car, they start talking about what just happened, and they both prayed together and committed themselves to Christ. And then they found a little Baptist church that was near them, that wanted to share the gospel in the towns around there and the the territories and whatnot. And so they get involved there. And then fast forward 35 years later, um, his dad quits the brewery, becomes a businessman doing welding, and and he becomes part of the steering committee in this church to bring another Billy Graham crusade up into their area. So 35 years later, he's back involved with Billy Graham. And there's this meeting where they're all kind of talking about it and getting ready for it, and a bunch of people are gathered in this hotel, uh, in a hotel room, and a man stands up and says, okay, before we start making plans here, let's have people come forward and give some testimony of like how you've seen Billy Graham and his crusades work in your life. 
and um, Jeff Christopherson's dad isn't really a speaker, but he kind of feels his heart pounding. And so he gets up, he's the first one to speak, and he tells this story about going to this movie, and he points to his two kids, Jeff Christopherson, who had planted a bunch of churches, written church planting books, is my two kids are Christians, and they've done all this work, and none of that would have happened if we hadn't gone to that movie and placed our faith in Christ. And people clap, his dad sits down, and then this old man gets up, second, and he kind of doesn't go to the pulpit, but he starts, I don't know if we'll make it through this, hopefully it's, uh, it's touching to you too. He shuffles his way to Jeff Christopherson's dad, weeping. And he hugs him and he says, Alan, my name is Tom Dice. I put that movie on 35 years ago. And I ran it for two weeks. I gave that same invitation after every service. And nobody ever trusted in Christ that he knew of for those two weeks he showed it every day. Um, and he thought it was just a complete failure. But he says, praise the Lord, it wasn't a failure. And so the point he was saying is, we don't have no idea what God will do with our faithfulness. We don't know if he has done things with our faithfulness. We might never see the results on this earth, but we will get to see the results either when we die or those people die or when Jesus comes back and we get to see this is what God did with that, me stepping out in faith. So I've said it before, successful evangelism is stepping out in faith and leaving the results to God. Successful evangelism is telling people the difference Jesus has made in your life and leaving the results to God. Successful evangelism is blessing others with the gospel and leaving the results to God. Successful evangelism is being the real you and leaving the results to God. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story that Jeff Christopherson shared about his his dad and mom. And uh, Lord, would you give us a compassionate confidence as we live our lives as Christians among people who don't share our faith and beliefs. Would you let us be joyful witnesses to Jesus and what he's done. In the name we pray. Amen.